Everybody's great. Would you even say it if you weren't? Um, grab your Bibles and open to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, today, just a little bit different uh, order of things. Um, we're going to read the scripture together, and to be able to do that, we're going to put that up on the screen. But you want to open your Bibles and have them open so you can follow along with, uh, with the text as, uh, as we teach this morning. So why don't you stand and uh, we'll read the scripture together. Read along with me out loud, please. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen, and thank God for his word. Have a seat. I've got four points in our sermon um, this morning. And you'll see them on the slides as we track through this text together. And the first, uh, the first point we're making is the first point that the author makes in the text. And I'll, uh, I'll remind you that the letter that's written here, it, uh, the intention of the letter, most likely it was a sermon. And it was recorded so that uh, the impact that it was having in a localized way was going to be had in a very broad way. So it was recorded, written down, passed around, and became a letter, but most likely it was a sermon. So the way it teaches, it ought to teach like a sermon. There's no need to be extremely creative about it. It basically has the points and the subpoints right inside of it. So the first point that the, the writer of Hebrews makes in chapter 3, in verse 1, is this. He makes an appeal to a better identity. He makes an appeal to a better identity. That is to say that there are ways in which we are creators of identities that are not better than the one that God gives. There are ways that we end up in an identity crisis, as it were. We end up asking the question, who am I? You face struggles in life. You face massive transitions in life. You face a trauma in life. And it's easy to feel shaken. You lose things. You have something taken away. You have to go from one thing to the next or something is is completely changed from what you expected it to be, and you end up asking the question, who am I? What that says is there was something of my identity that was in that thing. There was something of who I said I was, or who that, what that thing made me to be, that in the absence of it, in the change of it, now I end up asking the question, 
Who am I? My Sophia Ruth, she's our middle one. There was a time when she was playing soccer, maybe, I don't know, nine, 10 years old-ish. And uh, I played a little bit of soccer, and uh, they asked who wanted to coach, and I said, mm. and I ended up the coach. And uh, I, I was there, and I wasn't a very good coach. Uh, I didn't know how to teach as well as some of the other coaches. Um, I liked being with the kids. I like my kids being involved in soccer. Um, Sophia had an experience in practice, and I think maybe in a game at some point, that she turned out to say she liked being the goalie. I think some of it, truth be told, is because the goalie runs a little bit less than everybody else. <laughs> Oh, ouch, ouch. I come by it honestly, she says. She wanted to be the goalie. She was, uh, she was willing to stand in there. We were here in uh, Concord playing a team that we had no business being on the same field with. And uh, they were good. I mean, these little nuggets were running around, passing the ball to each other like they were pros. And we were not that good. So the ball made it to the back of the net eight or nine times in the first half while Sophia was a goalie. That's some painful stuff. That is some painful stuff. I mean, tears in the eyes. And the painful stuff for me is I'm leaving her in the goal because if I take her out, everybody's going to think, oh, you're just being light on your kid and all that kind of stuff. But Sophia is hurting. We get in the car. I don't even know. The score was maybe 10, 12 to 1 or 10, 12 to nothing, something like that. And it was horrific and traumatic. And every 10-year-old is thinking, I don't want to play soccer ever again. And... <laughs> We're on the ride home, and I'm talking to her about it. She's hurting and trying to care for my daughter. And I said, you know, honey, um, I'm not sure if this was the right thing to do or not, but I did it. I said, honey, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to play soccer. It's, there's no requirement in our house. And really, the only reason why I'm the, the coach is because you're playing soccer. I have really no desire other than the fact that it's you. I, I want to be with you. And she, <laughs> she looks at me and says something that was remarkable. She said, Dad, if I don't play soccer, then what will I be? Now, there is a lot being said in those words in there. In that moment, her little heart is revealed that there's something significant about being a soccer player that really ought not to be in that place in her heart. There's an identity, there's a dream, there's some vision of who I am that's attached to being a little soccer player. And you take that soccer ball and the soccer field and the relationships away and all of a sudden I'm asking the question, who am I? Who am I? That's what identity building does. When we make an identity for ourselves and we try to live out of it, it can't possibly, possibly last. And, and the reason is because, well, it's, it's made by man. It's made by us. 
Stuff that we build doesn't last. It doesn't stand the test. There's only one God who builds stuff that doesn't fall apart, and he builds stuff, as Hebrews says it, is an anchor for the soul. When our fake identity falls apart, we get disoriented, we get confused, we get afraid, we get ashamed. You remember the story of Adam and Eve and what happened with them. In this perfect relationship with God, in this perfect place with God, they're given one tree to not eat from. They eat from that tree. And what do they do? They run and hide. They become disoriented. They're no longer with God kind of people. They're no longer intensely, deeply, personally related to God and understanding who he is and him understanding who they are. Now they know best for themselves and they're running to the deep woods trying to get away from him, disoriented at the core of who they are. Complete identity crisis. That's what sin does. That's what creating an identity for ourselves does. When it breaks, and it will break, it will crumble, it will get challenged, you will become disoriented. And you, like Sophia, you, like Adam and Eve, will end up asking the question Who am I? Where do I fit? What is happening here? What is this all about? The sin of identity building does it. It brings pain that rebels, it brings fear that distorts, and it brings shame that hides. And the writer of Hebrews today is saying that there is a better identity. In his greeting to them, in his shaking them and saying, hey, let's move forward a little bit further, he's saying, let me remind you in my address to you who you really are. He first addresses them as holy. Being holy has to do with being clean. The idea of being clean versus unclean. And in order to understand the Jewish mind about clean and unclean, we have to go to the Old Testament. There's direction that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses about unclean and clean. And it feels almost unfair. It feels, it feels like, really, it's that big of a deal? And the, re- and the fact is, it is that big of a deal because we need to understand, and the people of Israel needed to understand what holiness really is about. Numbers, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is the Lord speaking to Moses so that Moses can speak to the people of Israel. He says this to them. Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge or everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of what? In the midst of where I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. 
three categories of people who are found to be unclean in the camp of Israel. Those who are leprous, those who have a discharge, and those who are unclean by coming in contact with the dead. Now God, in his wisdom, looks at each one of these defiled and unclean people, and through the person of Jesus, reverses and redeems and restores and addresses this matter of being unclean. I'm going to talk about just one of them. And it's the one with the discharge. It's a familiar story. Do you remember the woman who was bleeding for 12 years? This is a woman in the community of the Jews that would be seen as unclean. She's a woman who really was supposed to be kept separate from everyone else. In the time when Moses was given this, uh, gave this uh, commandment to the people, they were to be crying out, unclean, unclean. And they would even say, put them outside the camp. And they literally were put outside the camp. And there was a way for restoration, even in the Old Testament times. I don't have time to get into it. But even then, there was a picture of the restoration and the redeeming of an unclean person. Here, in this passage, this woman who has this discharge of bleeding for 12 years, she goes to doctors, she spends all of her money trying to deal with the issue, and it's getting worse every day. You need to feel the pain and the shame of this woman's life. You need to feel what it's like to be the one who's seen as the sinner, the one who's seen as unclean, the one who can't go anywhere without being known as that person. You know what that feels like? Do you live in a family that's kind of like that? Do you know what it's like to, to go to work and be that person? Do you know what it's like to be in school and to be that person who's seen as the unclean one? Do you know what it's like to sit here in church today knowing that there are people looking at you and watched you come in? Unclean. I know where they were. I know what they did. All of that and more most likely for this woman and she's saying to herself, if I, if I just touch the edge of his garment, I will be made well. And immediately, immediately after she touches the garment, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now here's what he didn't say. What unclean, filthy person touched me? Get them away from me because I'm clean and they're unclean and now I'm defiled. That's not what Jesus said. 
His disciples said to him, you see the crowd is pressing in all around you and you see who touched me. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. You can see it. By faith, she comes to him and touches the garment. By faith, she is healed. Yet she still has this issue of shame and fear. And she's scared to death of what this religious man's going to do. She fell down before him, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, not away from me, you filthy person. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is what Jesus does in his holiness to make others holy. When the unclean comes in contact with holy God, when Jesus touches the unclean, he doesn't become unclean. He doesn't become defiled. He doesn't become one that has to go outside the camp. He actually transforms and changes the person that he touches into holy and clean. Brothers and sisters, you ought to feel that at the core of who you are this morning. You've been touched by a Savior. Your identity has been transformed from unclean and filthy to clean and holy. Holy, he calls them. And he calls them brothers. He brings them near into the family of God. You are holy and you you have experienced, as Lad talked about last week, you have experienced the adoption as sons. You are no longer a distant person looking at God far off and in some hinterland. You're, You're looking at Jesus, your older brother, who has done the work that you might be adopted into the family of God. This is your identity. It is a better identity that any one of us can come up with on our very best day. He says, holy brothers who have a heavenly calling, a heavenly calling, a heavenly occupation, gifts and talents to be used in in light of your salvation. This calling that has been placed on your life is rooted in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you, not just so that you can get stuff done for him. No, just so that you can be his. It is your holy, brotherly calling just to be his child. This is your identity. This is your true identity. Whatever whatever name badge you have placed on your chest this morning, would you peel it off to see the real one that's underneath there? And maybe you got three or four that you got to just keep peeling off those identities that you've created for yourself. Mom, worker, nursery worker, Ministry leader, what are the identities that you have built for yourself? 
that you need to just pull away so that you might see the richest, most secure, most anchored for your soul identity that God has given you, secure in Christ Jesus. Amen? Is your identity in Christ. And you might say to yourself, I don't, I don't, I don't feel holy. I don't feel holy. I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel adopted. I don't feel like I have a role in the family. I don't feel any of those things, Jeff. Could I just call you? Could I just admonish you to fight? There is a battle that is going on. It is not a battle of flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. And you and I and we together are in the battle, fighting to remember our true identity. Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We are waging war, but we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds of my mind, strongholds of my heart, strongholds of things I believe about myself, strongholds of things that I've been told about who I am, strongholds of what people have said my identity is, but none of it's true. So I battle and I call you to battle, to fight, not against flesh and blood. It says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against what? Against the knowledge of God. What has God said about you? What has God said about you, Christian? Battle in your heart Battle for one another. Battle for the community that we might remember who we are in Christ Jesus. And that's the first seven or eight words. The second point that the author makes is this. In that battle, would you consider Jesus? Consider Jesus to consider Jesus as an apostle and high priest of our confession. To consider him is to meditate on him, to, to think about him, to wonder about him, to have him on your mind, to think of him as most important in your thinking for a long period of time. Consider Jesus. Considering Jesus is for all of us this morning. I hope you've already felt it. Considering Jesus is for all of us this morning. Considering Jesus isn't, isn't just for those who are broken and not walking with the Lord. Considering Jesus isn't just for, for an unbeliever who, who is in your life and you want to tell them to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus is for you and for me every day. Every day. Consider him as, as the apostle. He's a sent one. Jesus is a sent one. It's an important thing to remember. He's a messenger from heaven. He is sent from God to man with a message. And the message is himself. He is the greatest message. He brings God from eternity past. He brings God who is a member of the Trinity 
into history as a sent one. He is sent into humanity, sent into history as a member of the Trinity. John 17, if you would turn in your Bibles there, I want you to see how integrated the the sentness of Jesus is in his ministry and in his thinking. John 17, we're going to jump all the way through the chapter of John 17 and see how important being sent is to Jesus himself and how important it is for us to remember that he is an apostle, a sent one on our behalf. It is part of our anchor for the soul. Beginning in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, what? Whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The picture here is Jesus in eternity past. An eternal, blissful, perfect coordination and relationship with the Godhead. And at that time, the decision is made amongst the Godhead that Jesus becomes the sent one. He is an apostle carrying the message, not only of words, but of the person of who he is to humanity. Jump down to verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in, tr- in the truth that I came from you and that, you ha- that they have believed that you sent me. I want them to know that I came from heaven. I am God, a very God. I came from you and that you sent me. There's no accident here. There is a plan that has been enacted when we see Jesus as the apostle. Verse 18 says this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There's a pattern that's established here in Jesus' sentness. Jesus was sent by the Father and has all authority to send you and I in the pattern of the, 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 the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. Jump down to verse 20 and 21. He's praying now for you and me, looking down the corridor of time as the sent one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. What? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Knowing who Jesus is, from eternity past, sent from the Godhead, sent from from glory in the presence of the Father, sent into humanity and history, then returning again to his Father in glory. It is part of the anchor for our soul. It is the truth of what happened. It is what Jesus wants us to remember that you sent me so that the world may know, verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you feel loved by the Lord this morning? 
Do you struggle to feel loved by God? Where is he? Where do I, where do I see his love expressed to me? It is in Jesus being sent. This is God's love for you. Just like the Father loves Jesus, the sentness of Jesus is his love expressed for you. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he sent. He sent his son. He loves you. He's pursuing you. He has pursued you to the extent that nothing or no one ever has or will. Delights in you. Jesus being sent is not some reactionary plan B because everything got messed up. Jesus being sent, being the apostle, is plan A for your life. It is the very best option for finding an identity in Christ. Psalm 90, verse 2, if you remember, says, Before the mountains were brought forth, and ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And it will never change. Jesus being sent reminds us, in summary, that the eternal God has been made known in history. And he reveals who God is and what he's like, and that he loves you. He loves you. Consider Jesus, the apostle from heaven. Also consider him as a high priest. He's also the high priest, just as an apostle is a sent one who represents God before man, a priest is one who represents man before God. He is the mediator. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God. So God made a way for man to be represented by a priest. The high priest in the Old Testament once a year would take a sin offering on behalf of the people and act as a mediator before God in the Holy of Holies. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says it like this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator to represent men you and me, before a holy God. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle, the sent one who left heaven on your behalf that he would show, he would display his love for you. Consider Jesus, the high priest. Now in Hebrews 3, in verse 2, It says, who was faithful to him who appointed it, just as Moses, who was faithful in all God's house. This is where we get to the, in this transitional statement, he he gets to the point of Moses. And Moses is really significant to the people of Israel. So when they hear the the, the name Moses, it doesn't do the same thing to you and me. When when they hear the name Moses, they they say in their heart, they say, oh, now you're meddling. It's like when I mention the Cleveland Browns. And you're wondering if I'm gonna say something kind of positive or I'm gonna compare them to the Green Bay Packers. It's coming, get ready. But in their heart, that's what's going on. 
They hear Moses and they go, what is he going to say about Moses? See, Jesus, Jesus to the Jews, they had a big struggle in their heart. Some of them were thinking about going back to Judaism. Now, Jesus was put on a cross. Moses was an absolute rock star in the Israelites' eyes. In the Jewish person's eyes, Moses, Moses was, a, he, he was amazing. When you mention the name Moses, they're thinking, hmm? what's he going to say about Moses? Jesus and Moses were both faithful, this scripture says. But that is where the similarity ends. That is where the similarity ends. Moses and Jesus are extremely different. Extremely different. And that's what verses 3 through 6 are about. Let me read it for you again. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus is better than Moses. That's what the scripture says. Jesus is more glorious than Moses. We understand what glory is. Answer for me these questions. Out loud, please. We understand what glory is. Which has more glory, gold or silver? Right. Which has more glory, carrying a bag lunch or buying a lunch? We all know that. Which has more glory, Superman or Aquaman? Absolutely. Which has more glory? Here it comes. Are you ready? Which has more glory, Cleveland or Green Bay? Be honest. It, and this is an important distinction. This is an important dis- distinction. And I'll, I'll, I'll use Green Bay and Cleveland to make the point. Quantitatively, with math and science, Cleveland does not have more glory. <laughs> Truth? Truth. But when you live in Ohio, Northeast Ohio specifically, qualitatively, there's something in the heart of people that makes Cleveland have more glory. Am I wrong? There's something that you all will not give up on. And it has nothing to do with math, right? I know that. I'm a Green Bay fan. We had lots of years in your seat. And then came Brett Favre. <laughs> okay, let's make a little bit of a transition. Same Q&A, or same question and answer, yeah. Which has more glory, infinite or finite? Which has more glory, holiness or sin? We understand glory, don't we? Which has more glory, Moses or Jesus? For them, that question was not as easy as it was for us just now. Moses was a rock star to them. 
And when you say Moses and Jesus in the same sentence, they're going, ah, huh. That's why this letter is being written the way it is, to make that really clear. Moses was no slouch. This passage is not a slam on Moses, though. The writer is agreeing that Moses is a rock star. Moses is amazing in the history of Israel. He had a very, very special relationship with God. Numbers 12, verses 5 through 8 say this, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. They both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make, no, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with Moses. He is faithful, there's the quote, he is faithful in all my house. I speak to him, I'm sorry, uh, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, not in riddles, and he beholds my form face to face. This is my relationship with Moses. It was amazing. They were right to think Moses was extremely special, but where they were wrong is they put an identity in Moses that wasn't really true. It will be important for this writer to point this out, that Jesus is more glorious to Moses because they actually didn't have the clarity that we have regarding gold being more glorious than silver. Here's one picture that reminds us about their trouble with Moses' glory and Jesus' glory. In Luke chapter 9, you remember the picture of the transfiguration? Jesus, uh, it goes like this. Now about eight days after these, uh, these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he, as he was praying, the appearance of his face, Jesus, was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were, were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were, who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him... And as the men were parting from him, Peter says to Jesus, love Peter, right? Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. No distinction between Jesus and Moses there. You all get to be worshipped. We want a special place for all of you. Not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. They should have been. They were afraid as, as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, what? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You know why? They were rebuked heavily by the moment. They were rebuked by the Lord. Father, Father, Father God himself rebuked them. You want to make three temples for three people of equal status? Listen to me. This one right here, when you wake up 
and these other two are gone, this one right here, listen to this one. More glory. More glory. More glory. I think the ways Jesus is better is really obvious in the text. I'm just going to rip through them because I think you can read it for yourself and it makes complete sense. Jesus is a builder. Jesus is the builder of the house. Four ways that Jesus is better. Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses is a part of the house that has been built or that is being built. The second way, Jesus is creator God. Moses is a creature. The third way, Jesus is a son in the house. Moses is a servant in the house. Those are two very different relationships. Jesus is the final message. Moses was a precursor pointing to the final message. Four ways that Jesus is better than Moses. The last thing I have to say is painful. And it needs to just hang there with us. It's another drop the mic moment like happened a couple weeks ago. We don't like these conditional statements. We have this love-hate relationship with Hebrews for this reason because we hear this clear teaching about who God is and the authority of who Christ is. And then he comes along and says something like this. If you hold fast, you're part of God's house. If you hold fast, you're part of God's house. How do we know if we're part of God's house? If we hold fast. We have confidence. We hold fast to what? Our confidence in what? What is your confidence in? Your confidence, what is, what is your boasting in? The answer to both of those is the same based on the scripture that's being taught. He wants our confidence to be in Christ. He wants our boasting and our hope to be in what? In Christ. You are part of God's house if your confidence and your boast and your hope is in Christ. These people were looking into the eyes of some of the greatest persecution that the church has ever faced. It's as if, it's as if they're saying, now, I gotta say this, because I'm having this conversation with somebody, and I know a lot of you are having this struggle with Hebrews. Some want to turn this text into an argument over eternal security, over being saved and saved always once God saves. It's not that this text doesn't help that argument, but that is not the primary argument of this text. In doing so, we miss the main point. Don't miss the main point. It's, it's as if the person who has this question is saying, Pastor Jeff, are you saying someone can give up or lose their salvation? And my question back to them is this, do you want to give up? Why do you want to know? Do you, do you, have you already give, given up? Why do you want to know the answer to that? The text is clear. Do you want to be a part of the house? Are you a part of the house? Don't give up. Don't drift. Place your hope. Place your 100% your confidence in Christ alone. Now, what was your question again? 
text is not given for some theological yoga class where we feel like we, we can stretch our sin as far as we possibly can and still be saved. Still, give me some of that grace. That's not how the text reads. I'm going long. I'm sorry, guys. We're not supposed to see how flexible God can get with my sin. Richard Phillips, he says it this way. He says that there's no conflict between the teaching that all true believers are safe in the hands of God. Please hear me saying that. I get one more question about my, my, my steadfastness in in God's holding all who are his, please hear me say this. I agree with this man. There's no conflict between the teaching that all true believers are safe in the hands of God and the teaching that emphasizes that Christians must persevere in faith. All true Christians will continue in the faith until they are gathered to God. But it is also true, but it is also true that true Christian faith is proved only by steadfastness under trial. We are saved by faith alone, but the test of our faith comes through our willingness to persevere under difficulty and persecution. This is not meant to be a discouraging text. This is actually a text that's intended to be an older brother to a younger brother that says, keep going, don't give up. Hold fast. Don't give up our identity in Christ. Don't make identities for yourself. Hold fast to our apostle and high priest and all that he's accomplished for you that you might have joy and delight in what he's going to say later on now in chapter 3, that you might have rest. That you might have rest. I'm just going to pray for us. Frank, let's just hold off on the final song. I'm just going to pray for us and send us out. Would you stand, please? I'd like to be able to bless you. Our Father and our God, who delights heavily in his children who are his, we are grateful for the reminder of Scripture spoken over us and taught to us by the Spirit of God himself that both convinces us and convicts us of the truth so that we might be challenged to walk in deeper fellowship with the Son, that we might know who we are and who you are and what the relationship looks like and the provision that you have made in Jesus Christ on our behalf so that so that our confidence is not in ourselves. Our boasting and our hope is not in ourselves, but our boasting, our hope, our confidence is in Christ alone. And in this, I pray rest over my friends, over this house, over this family. I pray rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Christ we all say together, Amen.